Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. This is a classic pro wrestling show. Yeah, we generally talk about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm John McAdam. I'm the host of this show. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. You want to follow me on Twitter? Just search uh, John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. You also want to join our Facebook, especially this week, so that you can follow along. Um, my co-host, Steve Generelli, and I are going to discuss a an edition of Inside Wrestling from February 1983, so something that's 40 years ago. I also, if you would like to contribute, to stick to wrestling, which is ad free and free to listen to, just PayPal me at Pro Wrestling Archives, all one word at gmail.com. I want to thank David Hardy and Mike Leslie for their generous contributions to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Steve, how's your week going? Oh, it's going great. Uh, it's nice to be talking about uh, anything other than Bruno and Larry this week, uh, <laughs> getting away from that. So uh, it's great to be back. Yeah, we're going to have a non-WWF show because I plan on having two more right after this one. But, Steve, we're going to talk about a magazine, Inside Wrestling, from February 1983. That means it came out uh, just over 40 years ago. And, Steve, when you know I suggested the topic, you agreed to it, you read through the magazine, and you, you had something to say to me privately about the magazine. I'm like, no, 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 save it for the show. What, what, what in general did you have to say about this i think well what i had said to you was uh you know back then i really for a while i was buying these magazines like seven or eight years i was buying these magazines like they were gold pure gold jerry and uh and then all of a sudden um i just i just thought they were garbage especially the bill after line of magazines and because we're doing this particular show today about wrestling magazines it really kind of stirred up my memory and I thought about buying the magazines. I, I I don't know about you, John. Can you remember the very first wrestling magazine you ever purchased? I absolutely can. Um, I remember one of my friends had a, a wrestling album. It was a picture book and, you know, it blew my mind. I was like, okay, you know, who is Mill Mascaris? Who is Mr. <laughs> wrestling too? Who is Ric Flair? And then I bought the, I believe it was the August 1976 edition of Inside Wrestling. I believe that. Pretty sure that was the first one. I know uh, Terry and Dory Funk were on the cover. Wow. What was the first one you bought? Well, I'll give you a little preamble first. Uh, like our house, and I'm assuming yours was probably similar to ours. We were huge into sports. My, I have an older brother, and like if you went into our basement, like um, our basement, even though you're a Red Sox fan, our basement ceiling it looked like the facade of Yankee Stadium. I mean, he had a scoreboard up. He put the scores of the games up on the scoreboard. We had like you know covers of magazines all over the walls. Sports Illustrated. We had stacks of Yankee yearbooks. We had everything so i was already kind of familiar with sports magazines and sports books and uh i knew the i knew ring uh ring boxing was a huge magazine for boxing enthusiasts so uh, one day i was in my drugstore and this is shortly after i became a fan around the same time you did i'm in this drugstore and i see this the ring wrestling 
And it had a picture, a small picture of Bruno on the cover, but it was like an old picture of him from like practically like 10 years earlier. This is like 1976. And, you know, the people on the cover, I didn't really recognize anyone but him. And it wasn't really laid out that special, but it was ring wrestling. So I, I purchased it and brought it home. And, and it just opened me up to this whole new world. I mean, you had uh, Nat Bay, the publisher on the inside. He had this column, uh, uh, The Way I See It. He had this great uh, commentary about the state of the business, the state of wrestling. And it was very a very thoughtful commentary. It wasn't like uh, after-ish where I was really insulting your intelligence. Uh, and, and the best thing about the Ring Wrestling magazine, if you went all the way in the back, uh, or practically to the end of the magazine, you had all these arena reports from all over the country. And it gave you all these details of, of like what really happened in the matches. And, and you learn so much. Like, for instance, like with the WWWF, when they covered the Pittsburgh area, and I didn't know about this. Maybe you learned it at the same time I did. I learned it at the same time you did. Pittsburgh had the same, this posse of wrestlers who I had never heard of. Uh, Sergeant Frank Holtz, uh, Jenny DeFazio, Jim Grabmeyer, Fr- Frank Durso. I mean, these guys were never on WWF TV, but they had their own little circuit. So that that stands out to me as a magazine that I really enjoyed and would, would as the years would go on. Yeah, that is how I learned that Pittsburgh, West Virginia, and Eastern Ohio, like it was WWF, but it was a little bit different. And the magazines were different, and I really want to emphasize this to everyone, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some negative things to say, <laughs> and but, you know, I mean, I grew up on these magazines. Like, they were as big a part of my childhood. Like, wrestling was as big a part of my childhood as baseball, basketball, football, The magazines were as big a part of my childhood as the Red Sox, the Patriots, and the Celtics. I mean, it was just, you know, it was huge. It was a big deal to me. And I look back at them now, and I just kind of shake my head. And when I say that, I mean, I think the first time I really did that, Steve, was like 25 years ago. Just like, I can't even... You know, just let's say I'm eating by myself at home and oh, I'll just grab this magazine to to thumb through to keep myself occupied. It's like I, I couldn't even read the articles. They were so <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah, it just, you know, looking back on all the magazines, I mean, uh, you had uh, not only Ring Wrestling, they had Tom Burke's articles, again, really thoughtful, respectful articles, uh, fan club news and bulletin news. Uh, Wrestling World had articles very similar to that. You had Georgianne Orsi, who became Georgianne Macropolis. She had a lot of the insider fan uh, newsletters. And, and I remember Tom Burke one time had a great, great article in Ring Wrestling. It was so detailed with facts all about Chris Colt. It was like a biography of Chris Colt within like four or five pages. But, you know, even though the after magazines had a lot more glitter and these splashy covers and great covers, you found out sooner or later that, God, they had no substance on the inside and the other magazines were so much better. I agree with you 100%. Uh, the after magazines, and, and you brought this up, if you purchased The Ring, if you purchased uh, Wrestling World, what were the other ones? The, what was the Kiter magazines called? Uh, wrestling news was okay. was one, and, and and he he basically bought out. I think he bought out Ring Wrestling when that was kind of dying out, and it became mm-hmm. the Wrestling News, and uh, and and that carried on. I think his last issue was like eighty six, but but yeah, the Kaiser magazines were were just 
just phenomenal with every territory you can imagine. And that one territory was left out. No, there weren't. As a matter of fact, I am surprised I didn't just make up my own territory and start sending results in, <laughs> which I'm sure someone did. Um, but like like you said, like the after magazines, you know, those magazines, the negatives were like you'd see a picture of a guy and you'd be like, okay, this picture is like 15 years old. Give me a break. The after magazines tended not to do that. Although, like you said, like, you know, once you got past the news and the ratings, there really wasn't a lot of substance in the after magazines. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, I love these things. I grew up on them, and it's something that I grew out of eventually. I mean, I, I was still buying them when I was in my early 20s, and then I, in end of 86, I started getting The Observer, and it, it literally made the after magazines obsolete. And I mean, like, bam, overnight, these things are, are completely obsolete to me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for those folks that have a lot of the older back issues, especially the ones in the 70s and the, maybe even the 60s, I think where the after magazines really excelled, they had phenomenal photography in these magazines. And, the, and this issue that we're going to go over is a good example of that. But I think that they really excelled, too, in selling, like, we'll use this example, the Battle Royal. I mean, they made these Battle Royals out to be the most exciting match of all time. And, and you know, 30 wrestlers all in one ring, and they're all superstars from all over the world. And, of course, you and I have attended some, and they were always extremely disappointing. So it, there was, there was quite a uh, difference between what you saw in the magazines and what you saw in person. I mean, the battle Royals, like I said, they were, they were, I've said this on the show, best left to the imagination because not only were the battle Royals, it sounded so good on TV that looked so good in the magazines. And then you go see one and not only were battle Royals not entertaining, they messed up the rest of the card. Right, right. I and I was astounded. I mean, I learned a lot, some of this from you and hearing what you had to say that on some of these older uh, WWF shows, it would basically be, um, you know, um, the Battle Royal and then a bunch of squash matches where it would be a name guy against an enhancement guy. And, and nobody really wants to pay to see that. No, I mean, you know, I learned quickly that Battle Royal Night was, you know, just one of the worst wrestling nights out there. You know, when you have the Battle Royal early and then on TV, they're like, yeah, we'll see who's uninjured enough to continue wrestling. The promoters will be scrambling to put these matches together. Well, they already, you already bought the ticket. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what they give you after that. And yet, after the first one, I, I still kept going, Steve. I, I glutton for punishment with, with the Battle Royals, just like the magazines. I think we were lucky in that the WWF, for whatever reason, they never really pushed the Battle Royals too heavily. It was always like the AWA. That was a big deal there for maybe a month of the year. And, of course, in California, they were big for the two California promotions, but never really big on the East Coast. No, they, they did one in Boston about every four or five years. They they kept it fresh, and, you know, that's how often we were subjected to it. When the Hogan era came in, I think they kind of – they I, I'm pretty sure they dealt, got rid of Battle Royal Night in New York and Boston. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, we've got this great magazine to go over, so uh, – <laughs> I, I was going to say, now, another reason – to join our Facebook group, uh, I want to thank Wrestling Scans for providing this, and I will put up the link to this magazine on the group, so if you want to follow along, it'll be right there for you. Steve, the cover. Now, the after magazines had gotten away from the bloody covers 
it, it, generally speaking, like right around the seventies, they started putting up, you know, pictures of either good looking, muscular, or both wrestlers, you know, Mil Moskers, Kerry Von Eric. But here we have something that I had never seen before. And like the Battle Royal, a match that's best left to the the imagination. I had never conceived of a barbed wire match until I saw this cover. And here you have on the cover of the magazine, Dusty Rhodes covered in blood against Terry Funk. You really can't see, but you can tell he's bleeding. I mean, Dusty's got the blood pouring down his chest. One of those things where you're just praying you don't know the cashier when you buy this thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I, I wouldn't be embarrassed to buy this magazine, but you're right. It's, it's got a complete bloodbath on the cover. And um, I did a little research after seeing this photo because I think for any long-term wrestling fan who knows about you know, the big stars of wrestling, there's very few feuds more known. I mean, this is right up there with the Hatfields and the McCoys, Dusty Rhodes against Terry Funk. I mean, one of the most legendary feuds of all time so i did a little research on this uh and and this is mind-blowing to me this this feud actually lasted through parts of five decades five yes. decades mind you so the first time that they ever met and they, they were both like within their first or second year of wrestling was september 22nd in 1969 in abilene texas which I think was part of the uh, Funk's promotion. It was. And, you know, that year they they had uh, 10 singles matches with each other, and then they had uh, five tag matches with each other. And, uh, I, and I got this, uh, if you're wondering where I got this information from, folks, I went to the Clawmasters archives. Uh, it was Jim Zordani who passed away. Uh, lots of great results on his site. But uh, so I went through all these years, they would wrestle in every decade, even in the 2000s. The last year, 2005, they had two singles matches, one in South Carolina, one in Davie, Florida. I added them all up. They had 70 singles matches together, 60 tag team matches together. And the year that they were fighting each other the most was 1976, the bicentennial, yep. the year that Terry was champion. 28 matches, singles matches, most in Florida, maybe one or two in Georgia, uh, one tag match where they were both involved. But that year by far blows away any other year. Uh, maybe the uh, 79 and 69 come close, but it just, it's just amazing to think that these two guys sweated and bled over each other for parts of five decades. It's incredible. It really is. Dusty Rhodes was clearly Terry Funk's number one contender uh, during the a little bit over a year that Terry was the NWA champion. Then I remember summer of 79 buying one of the magazines and seeing that Terry Funk, who had been more or less out of wrestling except for Japan after he lost the NWA title. Not not completely. He made some appearances in St. Louis. He made appearances all over the place, but he didn't really have a uh, a big role anywhere until 1979 when he returned to Florida, went after Dusty Rhodes, broke his arm, cost him the NWA title. And I remember being like, wow, Dusty Rhodes and Terry Funk is a thing again. Yeah, it just uh, it just it lasted forever, and they milked it for all it's worth. And uh, they did a Joel Goodhart show in the early '90s. Uh, they did a three-way match with Abdul along the way. I mean, there's nothing that these guys didn't do. Uh, 
it was it was pure box office. It was big bucks for the Florida promotion and any other promo- promotion that booked these two guys. It, it really was. It's a legendary feud. Um, and by the way, yo, talk about me praising the magazines, okay? This is how crazy I was, Steve. When you, there was a part where you could order back issues of the rest of the scenes, right? <laughs> right, you right. You could get one for $2 or you could get 20 for $20. And if I had an extra 20 bucks laying around, which as a kid I didn't a lot – but I would, you know, send them 20 bucks and, you know, here's the list of the magazines I wanted. And Steve, it got to the point where there were no back issues left for me to buy. I had them all except for like the, the crazy rare $5 each ones, which I didn't care about. I mean, that's how much of a fan I was. Like I couldn't even buy and there weren't any back issues that I, that I could purchase. You really had me beat. I mean, I may have ordered just maybe I, you can count them on one hand the number that I ordered back issues, but 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 it was such a simpler time back then, pre-internet, pre oh, yeah. observer even. You know, in the in the late seventies, my, my father was actually a florist, and and up the street from the flower shop was this little bookstore that this little little old lady ran. And the cool thing about this bookstore, it had everything inside. It had coffee table books. It had bestsellers. But if you went in the back of the store, there was all these tables, paperbacks with the cover torn off for 10 cents. And then they had these big tables filled with magazines, just back issues of magazines that uh, weren't weren't uh, they were completely mint and you could buy like uh, buy them like 50 cents each or a dollar each and i can remember getting some of these older back issues you know not ones that were like seven or eight years old but maybe some that were like five months old or a year old and i, I felt like I, I hit the brinks truck you know i was so happy to get these older issues when I lived in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, they had an indoor year-round flea market, and there was this guy who sold back issues of wrestling magazines, and that's where I got a lot of those. I mean, once again, this is like when I'm 11, 12 years old. I don't exactly have money to burn, but you know, if I had a few extra bucks on me, I'd go buy some back issues. It, it was funny. Uh, in the 90s, when I was working um, with a buddy of mine, and, and this friend of mine was huge into Mickey Mantle collectibles, and we would go to these baseball card shows at like King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, and these places. And so you know, you're driving to these places where there's almost like a warehouse filled with baseball cards and dealers and people selling bats, memorabilia, Yankee jackets, you know, you name it, they had it. And I was always looking for wrestling magazines. Sometimes these guys would have like boxes of old yearbooks or penance or whatever and and in, inevitably a lot of these guys had wrestling magazines and i remember buying old issues of ring wrestling magazines and said it was the only one that to me was really worth anything because it had so much real factual information inside and the guys would always give me a dirty look like what do you want that for when you can get all the baseball stuff you know? yeah. but I, I was happy to get the old issues of ring wrestling a great publication I mean, magazines, especially a show like this, it's all about nostalgia. I mean, maybe five years ago, I decided that I just got up and decided, okay, I had the 1973 New York Mets yearbook when I was a little kid, and I want that to have that again. And I just went on <laughs> eBay and spent it was it wasn't even ten bucks, and I got a really good copy of it, and you know, I just got to relive being in second grade again. But anyway. <laughs> One of the the staples of the of inside wrestling. Let, let me explain what inside wrestling was. If you didn't know, it was a little bit different than the wrestler. In that inside wrestling was mostly it was almost like 
how do I put it? like like letters to the editor? Like you would have Dan Shockett, for example. He had a monthly two page column called Body Slams and Pinfalls. In nineteen seventy seven, Dan Shockett out of nowhere turns heel. <laughs> he is like, <laughs> A favorite of the bad guy wrestlers, and this is the one thing in the Hapter magazines where the heels are applauded. And in this issue, Dan Shockett talks about superstar Billy Graham returning to the World Wrestling Federation after pretty much being out of wrestling since 1979. Yes, he made uh, appearances in Houston. He made a, a couple of appearances in Memphis. He came back looking way different, Stephen. And back then, three years really was a big deal. And if you look at a sport like football, for example, guy makes a comeback after three years. Like, I'm going to have questions. Wrestling? No. Superstar Billy Graham's back. It's just like 1977 again. <laughs> well, well, he was a, a real darling of the after magazines. I mean, he, yes, was- he was. He he was over. I mean, the way he looked back in the day with the huge muscles, the blonde hair, the great tan, the weird outfits. I mean, he he must have sold a ton of issues. And now now he's back. He's bald. He's thin. He's frail. As a lot of our fans have said, he looks like G. Gordon Liddy. Um, <laughs> they really wanted to see if they can milk anything more out of him. I think in these magazines, but. It was very sad to see Billy Graham in this rough shape. He he looked so uh, fragile in this rough shape that he was in. You know what? It it went over my head. It really did. I was just like, you know, just blinded by the name superstar Billy Graham. And just, you know, I, I, that's how I saw him. I'm like, okay, he's, he's a little smaller. He shaved his head. You know, I remember seeing the magazine from his match against Bruno Sammartino in Houston in 1980 when he shaved his head. Now, I mean, talk about me being taken aback, you know, not realizing that, you know, he didn't have much choice by then. And, but yeah, I mean, you know, here we are celebrating. Uh, superstar Billy Graham returning to the World Wrestling Federation. And, I mean, he had a decent run. It, it was an okay run. <laughs> well, in that article, it's just, it's just, I mean, it's just like a one-note joke continued, like, throughout. I mean, it's just so unbearable. I mean, basically, he says in every sentence of this article, Dan Shockett says about how, you know, uh, Billy is going to do things that no one else could do. That all the money that Backlund's paying the commission, you know, there's nothing that Backlund can do. I mean, the article makes complete zero sense. I mean, if anybody who had been to the matches that knew that, you know, Backlund has dominated every opponent, I don't even think that the, the dumbest child would have uh, believed this article. It was so, so ridiculous. I mean, I, I just took it. And by the way, Dan Shockett was a real uh, person. He existed unlike, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, <laughs> but he he was real and he really did pass away in 1985. But yeah, I mean, Dan Shockett, his, his whole shtick was the delusional, I love the bad guys writer. Right, right. What, what did you What did you think of Peter King's uh, editor's notebook, where he uh, allows a certain famous wrestler to write his own article there? Did you oh, remember that? Oh, that's right. Yeah, well, <laughs> Peter King had this one page ar- thing every week, and he talks about uh, Jimmy Snuka 
basically takes over. And Peter King says, you know, I wanted this month's column to be about Jimmy Snooker, but I didn't know what to say. Then the following letter came in the mail. I feel all the fans should read it as it is addressed to them. Wow, what a coincidence. It, the letter fits perfectly into <laughs> exactly how much space they need to fill up. But yeah, Jimmy Snooker writes this ridiculous letter to Inside Wrestling, and they they publish it. And again, it, it, it's viewable if you join our Facebook group, uh, and you'll be able to click the you'll be able to click it and see what it is. Another regular feature was by uh, on the road by Craig Peters. Craig is one of the nicest people I've ever met, and he uh, travels to North Carolina to hang out with Jimmy Valiant. Yeah, yeah, and as part of that article, they they do a really nice plug for the PWI T-shirt. Yes, which I'm sure trying to push and uh, sell the T-shirt. One thing that was funny about this picture, uh, reminding me of Jimmy Valiant against uh, Joe Ledoux in the picture. Last week we talked about uh, the promotion that Killer Kowalski was running that had uh, David San Martino against Larry Zabisco in front of sixty fans that you were attended that show. Oh, sixty uh, there- if they were lucky. <laughs> right. Well, well, you know, uh, the, the Valiants were involved with that promotion, too. And, it, and it, things had gotten so bad for the Valiants after their miserable WWF run and a, and a kind of a poor run they had in Florida in the late 70s, too. They were actually selling sodas for one of that for that very promotion and the TV taping, uh, oh, both dear. of the Valiants. And uh, but here here's uh, Jimmy Valiant back. He's feuding with Joe Ledoux in uh, uh, the Carolinas. And. You know, God bless them. This is the beginning of a long run and a very profitable run, uh, being a real box office star. And and to me, uh, you know, if, if you had to ask me what were the biggest shocks of wrestling um, of your lifetime, uh, seeing Jimmy Valiant go from being forgotten in the WWF, getting even pinned by Lou Albano in Madison Square Garden, and him, him revitalizing himself, and all of a sudden, with his new look and uh, whatever he had to offer, he was – he was pure golden uh, WCW or NWA for the Crockett's. Yes, uh, and Steve, just so you know, I don't I mean to correct you or anything like that. It was mm-hmm. it was actually Johnny and Jerry wrestling for the the Kowalski promotion. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. I don't think Jimmy was was part of it. And Ron the Bandit Shaw was part part of that as well. Right, right. Yeah, uh, he was I, a headliner. This little thing in on the road with Craig Peters. He gets in a cab. And the cab driver says, say, where did you get that T-shirt? You work for that magazine or something? And the then the cab driver goes, well, maybe you can tell me something. How come everyone is down on the boogie-woogie man? Why can't they just leave him alone? I would be like, why don't you just leave me alone, cab driver, and get me where I need to be? But I mean, this is just the nature of the magazines. Like, they have these these insane Things and conversations that just, I, I know they never happened. Maybe this one was real because, as you and I know, sometimes when people say, Oh, I hate that wrestling, and then they say to you, But, you know, tell me about this guy. What happened to him? And yeah. all of a sudden they go, they go and ask you about 20 questions in a minute. No, I mean, totally. Another regular was behind the dressing room door with Stu Sachs, which is, which could be about anything. And like I said, these are almost like letters to the editor from newspapers, just one guy spouting off his opinion or making up a story, whatever. This was about Terry Funk running around with his fake NWA championship. And which, I mean, got a lot of heat with me personally. I'm like, you know, you can't just buy a title, Funk. You got to earn it. You stink 
Was there ever any real payoff to that feud or that, that, that gimmick of him having like a replica title that meant nothing? It, you know, Steve, I'm glad you asked that. It really felt like an angle that the the magazines and for the magazines by the magazines because I don't remember Terry Funk. I, I have never seen Terry Funk on television with that title. Like I don't think he ever went. You know, I don't think he ever turned it into a real life angle. I think it was just a magazine angle, and they had those. Yeah, it, it, that must be what it was because I, I I never heard of it honestly until now. Yeah, I didn't, didn't even know it existed. No, I I knew about it and it, it got me all steamed. So let me see. We've got uh, why did I not buy this? Captain Lou sings. He's <laughs> got a record out with NRBQ, and for two dollars and seventy five cents, I could have had this collectible, but no. I'm sure Scott Cornish has it. He has all the wrestling albums. John Boucher probably has it. He has all the wrestling merch. But anyway, I want to intervene one thing on that Matt Brock's column that you alluded to, the one with the Terry Funk belt. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was one other piece of gold on here that I, we just can't let this slip by. He was talking about the big angle where uh, Jimmy Snuka got beat up by Albano and, and Stevens. And this is what he had to say. He says um, he was wondering, like, how come nobody came to Jimmy's aid? And, like, how come Strongbow or Pusky didn't come out? And he says, I wouldn't be surprised if that fat fiend went around to all the dressing rooms and Jimmy, the doors shut so that they couldn't come out. I mean, <laughs> who, who wrote this? A sixth grader or seventh grader? It was the most ridiculous scenario I've ever read. Oh, man. Let me find. I'm, I'm going down looking for the, the Matt Brock column. I remember when they added Matt Brock, I want to say 78. And so I'm like 12, 13 years old, and I knew – I'm like, they, they have this picture of the guy wearing a visor, looking down hey, – there it is uh, – looking at the typewriter, and I could tell right away Mac Brock did not exist. The, the column – was about him traveling all over the place. The guy would go to like five or six cities per month and come back with a a paragraph of, about Terry Funk in this case or or Jimmy Snuka. It's like this does not seem like the most useful way to spend money. We're going to fly this guy to six different cities, put him in a hotel, and we'll have two pages filled with big pictures on top of everything. He was the, the, the grizzled veteran of the wrestling and journalism world and uh, always had the uh, cup of coffee ready to go. And I, I can remember being a kid, like, uh, you know, reading it uh, before I went to bed at night, just thinking, my God, maybe I could be Dan Shockett when I grow up someday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they had the one-on-one. Now, this came in around 1978, and it looked very futuristic, where they would have these video phones, and mm-hmm. you would have two guys usually arguing with each other, and in this issue of the magazines, we've got Captain Lou Albano and Buddy Rogers having a conversation, and every week, in every month in Inside Wrestling, they also had the hot seat. And in both cases, Steve, they're, they're similar. Like the hot seat, they would talk about a guy flying into New York to be interviewed. And I'm like, okay, I'm reading this conversation. It took me if, – if these guys were talking really slow, it was going to be about 120 seconds of conversation. Ditto the one-on-one. It's like – I mean, just one crazy thing after another with these magazines. 
Yeah, yeah, the hot seat. I mean, you know, it it tried to be like the Playboy interview of the magazine, I guess, but it was just so contrived, so ridiculous. I mean, just just, just so uncreative. I mean, it was just it was miserable reading it. I, I couldn't even read it. No, it, it's that's the thing. I mean, these are when I would buy these forty years ago. Believe me, as soon as I walked in the door, that magazine was, was getting read cover to cover within oh, sure. thirty minutes. But I mean, you look back now, it's like you know, okay, I like the pictures, but there's nothing really readable. But let's talk. Let's talk about the good stuff of the inside wrestling, and this was it's. Good now, it was great back in the day. Uh, the two really good things, one was the ratings, and number two was the names making news, which was basically the, the news part of the magazine. And if you lived on the West Coast, this is how you learned that Jimmy Snooker has finally turned babyface, and they told you what happened. Yeah, the, reading this news part of the magazine, it, it had one little little nugget of truth that really got me and put a smile on my face. I said, Jim Cornette, whose photos have appeared in our magazine for years, has uh, resigned to pursue a new endeavor as a wrestling manager. Good luck, Jimmy. And it's like, my God, uh, <laughs> you know, this is how it all began, you know, and now look at him now. He's the best. No, absolutely. I mean, and and you look back to like the Ring magazine. You have articles written by Jim Cornette. Yeah, that that's that's mind blowing right there. Yeah, so they've got in here. They've got uh, they're covering the Jerry Lawler versus Roddy Piper feud, which never got off the ground. Uh, and like I said, they give you the news. They tell you that uh, Nick Bockwinkel. Uh, refuses to wrestle Otto Vons again. Well, he doesn't feel like traveling. Uh, Jack <laughs> Briscoe regains the Mid-Atlantic title from Paul Jones. Skandor Akbar is managing Kamala in Mid-South, etc. Like, this is where you got your your little tidbit of news, most of which was true. Some of it was, you know, garbage. I mean, David Von Erich proves true to his words. He vows to his Texas rooters that he would stick to the rules no matter what uh, against NWA champion Ric Flair, even under the most adverse conditions. David did not break one rule. He failed to win the belt, but he did get everyone's respect. Like I want to see that match. <laughs> that, that was one thing the After Magazines always did is uh, using that term, rule breaker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> scientific wrestlers versus rule breakers oh my god that was the world we were immersed in i know i know and uh, thankfully we're no longer immersed well we're immersed in wrestling but not the magazines thank goodness yeah really every day if you get on twitter you get on facebook you see somebody bashing dave Meltzer. oh that Meltzer's the worst but it's like you know thank god for Meltzer. i mean if this is all we have for wrestling news i would be uh I would have shot my head, myself in the head long ago, long ago. <laughs> I, I, you know, people, the people who bash Melter, I'm convinced are the people who have never read an issue. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I, I really believe, Steve, that maybe right around 86, 87, if not for the Observer, I would have, I, I would have probably would have drifted out of being a wrestling fan. I'd be talking about it now, like, oh, yeah, I liked wrestling back in the 70s and 80s, and then I got tired of it. Like, you know, when The Observer arrived, it, it gave you really a, a fresh perspective and just an honest look at the wrestling industry. And once again, it made the after magazines obsolete. Like, okay, here is where I get my news from now on. 
Oh, yeah. I, I would say it really uh, enhanced my enjoyment of watching wrestling back then. And this is the late 80s. I'm sure that's when you're reading it, too. And uh, so, it, you know, it comes in the mail Saturday, maybe one o'clock. And maybe you saw some wrestling earlier that morning. You're going to watch a lot more later as the day progresses. And you're talking about what's happening in every territory. You're hearing little snippets about what might happen. And you watch all the shows, and then you, another week goes by. You get another issue in the mail. I mean, it was just great, and and I'm sure I'm sure you did this too. As the wrestling newsletters got to be a big, big thing. You had uh, Pro Wrestling Sushi, Ron Lemieux had a newsletter, uh, Pro, Pro Wrestling Torch, Steve Beverly's newsletter, and gazillions others. So it, it just you know, um, you know, Meltzer de- definitely didn't start it because there were Boltons going way back many decades, but uh, his was definitely the best. No, that's something I- I've said it before. I look back on and I regret, you know, I-, I couldn't get enough wrestling publications, but yet I would not gamble on a newsletter that was advertised in the ring or the wrestling news, whatever. Uh, so anyway, Ted DiBiase does this in- – oh, well, quote-unquote, does this interview. Uh, and you can just tell it's not Ted DiBiase talking. And once again, who would fly to New York to talk to someone for two minutes and then leave? But obviously someone from the office just wrote the interview. And I, I wonder what it's like to be Ted DiBiase and see this and be like, okay, I had nothing to do with this air quotes interview. Well, these writers were just, uh, you know, they, they'd write that crap, then go back to playing Stratomatic and then write another article. But, but, but I think you were going to touch on the, uh, the ratings, which I actually prefer the older ratings where it was just like maybe on page six of the publication, like right in the very front of the magazine, it would have like one page, you know, just black lettering on a white background, the top 10 in every promotion, uh, top 10 tag teams, which would be, like a kind of a combination from every territory. This this two-page format that they have in this particular issue, I really didn't care for this one. Well, it, actually, Steve, that the inside wrestling always had their, or as far as I know, uh, going back as far as I can, always had their ratings looking like this. You had a two-page thing with a picture of every wrestler. This is the place where sometimes we got stuck with an older picture. The wrestler and Sports Review Wrestling had that one-page thing where it was just, right. okay, black ink telling you who the top 10 was. And then in 1985, and I loved this, I wish they had started doing this 10 years earlier, they would have a breakdown of every, you know, a top 10 in every promotion, like Portland, Georgia, you know, all of them, even the smaller ones like Portland and Memphis. Actually, how the other magazines did it, like, uh, say, Wrestling World and Ring Wrestling and those, those, I think, with Wrestling World, they may have done a top 50. And with yes. uh, Ring Wrestling, they did like a top 25 of just the top men, the top women, and top tag teams. I kind of like the way that they did it better because it just, just was more mysterious. Like, how did they how did they come up with this? You know, is it yeah. just, there wasn't really any rhyme or reason, but it, it did make a lot of sense the way they usually did it. So. I mean, I remember walking into the drugstore or whatever and, and ready to buy my wrestling magazine. And I, before I even bought it, I would just like go in there and open it up. And the first thing I would do is look at the ratings. The ratings would tell you basically two very important things. Number one, did a world championship change hands? This is before I was getting Georgia. You know, by now, I was getting Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, but let's say if the AWA title changed hands, that's number one. Number two, if someone turned heel, 
they would almost automatically be placed on the top of the most hated list. And they do, they don't do it here, even though Ted DiBiase has just turned superstar. Billy Graham has come back to the WWF. So he's number one. Uh, Ric Flair is getting heat from all the different territories. So he's number two. And where's Ted DiBiase? Let me find this. <laughs> Because it's it's split up into two pages, and it's kind of hard to read. Okay. Ted DiBiase is number three. The newly turned Paul Jones is number four. Uh, Buzz Sawyer is on national cable. He's number five. And then we get Stud, Bockwinkle, Kamala, Sergeant Slaughter, and Abdullah the Butcher to round up the top ten. Now, one thing we didn't mention about the cover of the magazine, there was a smaller photo of uh, Hulk Hogan pounding on a very dazed and confused Ken Patera, who looked I like I love was, dazed and confused Ken Patera. <laughs> he he looks like he's on Queer Street for sure in this photo. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, they had a really nice nice article in the in the issue, kind of comparing them, and they had a tale of the tape between the two. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that article, or or the just the two of them in general? Well, I, I did like that article because it came across, unlike most of the stuff that the Aftermags did, I mean, it came across as something le- legitimate. Like, they're really trying to compare these two the way you would compare two boxers. Yeah, it, it did have a sense of legitimacy to it. And and, and because, uh, you know, these guys are two guys that we talk about a lot on Stick to Wrestling, I, I was just kind of curious, uh, again, how many times did they wrestle and where did they wrestle? And so, again, I did a little research. It turns out they wrestled 32 times, according to the record books that I found through uh, Clawmaster's results. The, the most times they wrestled were f- 15 in 1982. 13 and 83 and then just a handful in other years so 32 singles matches 50 tag team matches and most all of that with the exception of some some 1985 wwf was all awa so i kind of think that this version of ken patera wasn't nearly as exciting as say 1976 77 ken patera when he was so big like that, 300 pounds against Bruno, against uh, uh, all the baby faces he injured, like Billy White Wolf, uh, he injured Kevin Sullivan and a few other guys, Johnny Rivera, I think. Yep. I mean, when he, when he could do those uh, flying leapfrogs, he was just so agile and so powerful, and, and he would do the feats of strength. Uh, do you remember when he blew up the hot water bottle? <laughs> he blew it up in the ring with Vince announcing, and uh, he, like, staggered backwards once it blew up in his face. <laughs> it really looked like it did a number on I will never forget that. That was so hilarious. Yeah, but, but you really believed in it too. You know, I mean, it was it was one thing to see him bending the bars and stuff, and you always kind of wondered, you know, are these bars worked or whatever. But you know, with the, with the water bottle, that seemed like a legitimate thing. And uh, and I like that gag they did years later on TNT, where he, where Vince was driving the truck and he was holding it back with his feet. That was a, that was a good one. Yeah, the, the the strength of the test of strength with, with Patera were funny, and I I definitely remember that seventy seven one when he was doing it in the middle of the ring with Vince McMahon, and the hot water bottle blew up, and Patera <laughs> just had this look on his face, like you know, he like he was the. I saw this commercial for Cocaine Bear yesterday while watching yeah, I football. Saw that too. That's what he looked like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just staggered backwards. He looked like he was just just really uh, took took a pounding there, but. Uh, so what else did you like in the magazine? 
Well, another, I mean, they really got a lot of mileage out of this. I think it was 70, it was 77 or 78 when Ken Patera was on the world's strongest man competition. That's right. Which was kind of a big deal back then. And here it is five years later and, and they're still milking it. But what you're seeing in this picture and they're, they're talking about it is, yeah, Ken Patera legitimately, here's the proof, is one of the strongest men in the world. He was the only wrestler that really uh, did really well for himself. The other ones like Superstar and Putski and Jerry Blackwell, they they just they just might as well not even shown up. I mean, but but he he was so good, and and his his personality on that show really came through with uh, Brent Musburger. He was really he was like the Patera that we knew from WWF. But the other guys, I I mean, Billy Graham must have been coked out of his head. He he, he couldn't do anything. He had no promos on the show. He was just completely stoned. No, Graham, I I thought was a good interview, but I think he's one of the most overrated interviews out there. And I've talked about this before. You know, people uh, say, oh, superstar Billy Graham, 20 years too soon. No, Graham would have been just another guy if he had had come out 20 years later. But another (laughs) monthly feature we have in, in Inside Wrestling was called a Capsule Profile and this one is for Brad Rangans and basically they talk about Brad Rangans but then they have like, they put in like little quotes supposedly from Brad Rangans you know they talk about uh, a quote from Brad, I think an amateur wrestling background is necessary before anyone can even contemplate a professional career, like you know, like like he actually said that <laughs> George Steele certainly didn't need an amateur career. <laughs> uh, and then you get the, you know, every month we got a close-up pro- uh, picture of the guy who did the capsule profile. And another thing that they did, and I always thought this was pretty cool, where are they now? Because sometimes these would come in handy. Like, you know, I didn't know where what a particular wrestler was doing. One guy they had on here was Moose Cholak. Now, I have no idea how old Moose Cholak was in 1983, but dang, I saw him. I have footage of him from the 70s, and he was ancient then. So they, and of course, where is Moose Cholak wrestling? For Dick the Bruiser's World Wrestling Association, of course. Yeah, WWA would be running for a few more years. I think it uh, was still running in 86 or 87, but. Um what did you think about this big article they had on Stan Hansen against Ric Flair? That's a, to me, a very unique matchup. Well, of course it, it's written by Dan Shockett. So we know what road we're going down here. Ric Flair has established himself as a quote unquote bad guy in pro wrestling, you know, as NWA champion, he's not, he's not even a, a good guy in the Carolinas anymore. And he goes to Georgia to, to challenge uh, Stan Hansen challenges him for the NWA championship. This is when uh, Stan was still a heel. He and Ole Anderson were a tag team. And uh, I mean, Dan Shockett makes it sound like, you know, this was the, I mean, just the greatest wrestling match of all time. You know, Ricky, Ric Flair versus Ricky, Ricky Steamboat from 1989. Well, I will say, and again, this is what they did the best. The photos are outstanding from the match. Yes. And uh, you can see uh, Flair definitely looks very uh, in his prime uh, peak condition. And uh, I never have seen uh, Hanson looking so uh you know, well-conditioned. I mean, it looks like he's even got some abs there almost. So he's uh, in really good uh, peak condition for Stan Hansen, who's usually, uh, you know, a bit larger and overweight. 
No, you know, I just noticed that Stan looks, I mean, for Stan Hansen, he's downright thin. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying up. he's not a big guy, but he he doesn't have a gut here. Yeah, he's very impressive looking. Uh, now, we, we've gone through most of the issue, but did you have a chance to look at some of the advertisements in the back of the magazine? Oh, I sure did. I sure <laughs> did. I mean, and what, what I'm going to say, these advertisements are nothing compared to what they were like in the mid to late 70s. They toned it way down, yet still, you know, if, if your girlfriend's coming over to hang out, you are hiding this magazine. Yeah, you know, you know, I hadn't thought about it until what you just said, but I do remember one of the very first wrestling magazines I had ever gotten. I think it was like Afters uh, Wrestling Annual for 1976. And if you opened up to like page six, it was these uh, live blow-up dirt, blow-up girls. Yeah, had and it had these pictures of these two uh, really uh, well-endowed uh, young ladies, uh, and it's mind-blowing. And I think my brother had gotten the issue and said, "Now, now I know why he's buying these issues." But, uh, <laughs> that could could have been further from the truth. But uh, there was one, uh, there was one ad that really struck me as hilarious. I'm just looking for it now. I got to read it to you. Yeah, this was one of the smallest ads here. Uh, it was, uh, I think it's on page 41, a really small little ad. It says Best Buy Mail. And uh, this says, and, and how you and I missed this all those years ago, John, we must have been blind. But it says in small print, lotteries and sweepstakes win millions every week in French <laughs> National Lotto. And Lotto is misspelled, L-O-T-O. Free details, BP69. Oh, one, two, 28, Devon, France. I mean, we oh, could have won, we could have won lottos every week, not just one, once in a lifetime. Unbelievable. Millions of dollars every week. Like, you, you <laughs> might as well tell a big lie as opposed to a small one. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, oh boy! And, and that was just one of many other completely ridiculous uh, ads and services and fake diplomas and fake this and that. Oh my God! What a, it was hilarious reading some of this stuff. You know, more than forty years ago, I got my first fake ID, and me and two of my friends—long story—but we got it from Rolling Stone magazine, uh, an ad from there. And it was like, why I could get I could get a fake ID right from the wrestling magazine. Why did I wander so far from home? Well, Rolling Stone, that's first class. I mean, uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what? I, I won't stick to wrestling for a a kid in his mid-teens. I was very smart, Steve, when it came to fake IDs. Right? Mm -hmm. We live we lived in New Hampshire, right on the Massachusetts border. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I knew, again, I look back, I'm like, wow, that was very smart of you for such a young guy. I'm like, okay, if we get New Hampshire IDs, everyone's going to know they don't give these out in New Hampshire. Massachusetts, <laughs> same thing, but Rhode Island, it's close enough so that, you know, okay, this guy could be visiting from Rhode Island, but it's far enough away where it's like, oh, maybe they just give these things away in Rhode Island. So I was very proud of myself, Steve. That's my <laughs> my short fake ID story. Well, you, you outthought out them on that. Uh, there was one other completely ridiculous article in the magazine about how uh, the Grand Wizard sacrificed Cowboy Bob Orton because he Wizard wanted Superstar to beat uh, – 
Backlund instead of Orton beating him. And it was just so, so awful. So ridiculous. No, I mean, again, these are, you know, just the way the magazines worked is, okay, we have photographs of a match between Bob Orton Jr. and Andre the Giant. Let's create a story around it. And the story was just ridiculous. Grand Wizard sold out Bob Orton Jr., gave up on him because superstar Billy Graham unexpectedly returned to uh, be, be managed by the Grand Wizard. You know, supposedly uh, Bob Orton's sister dated Andre for a brief time. I don't know how brief it was, but uh, I think she would make a great 605 Super Podcast regular uh, screen. <laughs> Screaming Brenda Orton, or whatever her name is, <laughs> that would be her gimmick. Screaming Brenda Orton, and uh, you, you know why the screaming, but uh, yeah. I mean, that, would be, that would be a great art, great uh, new character. I've heard that that Bob Orton Jr.'s sister and you know Bob Orton Sr.'s daughter dated Andre the Giant. I figured that you know that would be a no no in the Orton family, but I guess you're not going to tell Andre the Giant what to do. I probably put uh, Barry O over the head. Over, <laughs> probably really made him become the Zodiac. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, so the last article I want to talk about: barbed wire match, Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes. The, the article, of course, is ridiculous, but the photographs are absolutely great. I oh, mean, they're, they're incredible. Wrestling photographs, which you know, at the time I was. Oh, the, the photos are just outstanding. I mean, they they really make you want to attend a match like this. And uh, they, I'm sure this issue probably sold really well in Florida with the fan base here and Dusty being so incredibly popular here. Uh, and, and I'm sure when fans bought something like this, it probably enticed them to go to the matches on top of that. I mean, it definitely, believe it, as silly as the magazines were or could be, I mean, it absolutely fed into my fandom. I mean, I absolutely was a bigger wrestling fan because I had these magazines. Yeah, and one one final thought about the after magazines. Another thing they did really, really well, uh, I mean, these magazines sold so well that even in the 70s, they would have these reprint magazines with old articles like uh, Best of the Wrestler volume, whatever. And uh, they'd have these articles about like the bloodiest matches. And I remember one was Bob, Bob Armstrong against uh, Bobby Duncombe. One was uh, Abdullah versus Torquemada, Hammer versus Tongs, uh, just these bloodbaths. And they did a really good job, like, creating this lore to the matches and uh, making you think about guys like Bull Curry, who maybe were no longer such a big part of wrestling, but had become legends and territory legends. And, and you get to learn about them through these magazines. I remember buying like best of the wrestler. There were, there were a couple of uh, wrestling's greatest battles was the other one where they were just right. read articles and have the pictures. And I remember being in a drugstore kind of thumbing through it. Like, okay, I have this article. I have this article. I have this. I don't have this article. Let's buy this. Oh yeah. It, it's, I, I think that even though uh, wrestling really got super popular in the eighties, as far as just, uh, becoming more mainstream and of course in the decades that have followed i think that those fans have no idea how extremely popular these magazines were in the 70s because even these old issues that we're talking about these reprint magazines were selling like hotcakes i mean they were they were if you didn't get them they were gone i mean the, the newsstands had uh a, a, almost like a dozen different magazines every week uh um well at least every month that were selling like hotcakes so um and more power to after and and these guys that were putting these magazines out 
You know, Bill Lapter was talking about, you know, why was Bruno Sammartino on the cover of the magazine so often? And Bill was like, you know, when we had Bruno Sammartino on the cover of the magazine, the magazine sold a lot better. And uh, Steve, that's always kind of confused me because growing up, you know, and it's kind of sad. Like, I can't remember the last time I bought an actual magazine. It's, it's probably been at least 12 years and that's just gone because of the internet. But I had the magazines that I would buy. Okay. Like every week I would buy the sporting news. Didn't matter who was on the cover. Okay. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I would buy the wrestling magazines. I would buy a sporting mag- news and the cover didn't ma- matter to me, but I guess it mattered to other people. I don't know. Yeah, I, it just, I, I'm sure that, um, because in those days, I mean, the news about wrestling compared to, I mean, the, the baseball scores you can get out of the newspaper, you could read about baseball in your daily newspaper, or the wrestling was always so mysterious. I could see why the sales, I remember Burt Sugar, I think, had said that the, the wrestling magazines outsold the boxing magazines by this enormous proportion, like uh, five to one or 50 to one or something, but wrestling was so mysterious the fans had to rush out and buy these things just to get any information even if it was wrong it was at least getting something no they in the boston globe and in the new york daily news uh they would usually print the results the you know the globe would have it from the boston guard the new york daily news would have the results from madison square garden but that was it it was just the results you know dusty roads detour kamada and it was in the smallest print imaginable i mean that's all of the coverage wrestling got in the newspapers at that time. So, yeah, if you're a wrestling fan and you want more than what you're just seeing on TV, this is your only option. Yeah, it, it was. I, I used to uh, – my father would get at the New York Post for us, and uh, they would have those little thin little ads for the next garden show. Like on a Monday, they'd have the oh, ad in, in the – yeah, they'd have the ad in the paper. And then he would get the evening edition, I think, on Tuesday – which would have the results from the late Monday card at the garden. And they'd usually have it like in, in the back kind of where the horse racing results were yep. this like in heavy black font, like, uh, you know, Bruno beat Patera or, you know, Dusty beat Graham or, and then they'd have, they'd usually have a nice little, you know, kind of cover all the other matches. And sometimes they would say who was on next month's card, but, um, but I mean, even getting that, I, I felt like I won the lotto. I mean, I was just for a wrestling fan. This was like uh, water in the oasis. It was just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I would uh, sometimes go to the 7-Eleven down the street from me and just pick up the newspaper and, and look at the results from Madison Square Garden. I mean, I thought Greg Valentine was winning the championship from Bob Backlund October 1981. And it just said Greg Valentine D. Bob Backlund. I'm like, okay, that could mean anything. I am nowhere more informed <laughs> than I was coming in. Steve, the hour always goes by really quickly. This was another great episode. Thank you for your contribution as always. Well, thank you, John. I, I uh, When you asked, uh, told me what the topic was, I didn't really know we would get through, but it, it really gave us a chance to kind of uh, you know, pay homage to the old wrestling magazines. And uh, we're really happy to do that today with you. No, that was cool. And like I said, we got to go over, you know, uh, some, we didn't even touch on the results. We've got, you know, that was two pages that they killed every month. And that's kind (laughs) of it. But yeah, you know, it was, it was a good episode. Thanks very much. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling. Believe me, he does a lot of great work. 
And I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. Uh, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.